Welcome to the final episode of Unhousing, Claiming the Human Right to Home, the fourth season of Moral Courage Radio. I'm your host, Joel Pruce, sitting in for Maria Jones. Throughout the season, we've brought you voices of ordinary people taking on the big guys. That's what we do here at Moral Courage Radio. And in housing, the big guys are real big. Banks, hedge funds, corporations, and the governments that too often work to secure and protect the preferences of the wealthy elite. When we were in Oakland, we met so many people who exemplified what we mean by moral courage. Individuals with no prior experience or training, who saw a need in their community and took risks to protect dignity and advance justice. We heard so many stories from folks who banded together to address a threat, not because it was their professional responsibility, but because they had to. They could not not do what they did. Their neighbors needed it, and their convictions demanded it. But there is also a larger idea at play this season that focuses not only on the actors who challenge the system, but on the system itself, one that rewards exploitation and rationalizes the unhousing market. So, in this final episode of our fourth season, we bring you an individual who takes a structural approach and seeks to change the system by fundamentally reconfiguring how it functions. As we heard in the last episode, mechanisms like land trusts are crucial for how they compel us to rethink the value we assign to commodities like property. And when the ideological underpinnings of the system begin to be questioned, then the material interests that motivate it can also evolve. This is how you take on the big guys when the big guys are this big, by strategically dismantling the system while simultaneously building a new future to replace it. A future full of powerful people who know their power and use their power to remake a just society. My name is Noni Session. I am the co-founder and executive director of the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative. Um, I'm also a third-generation West Oaklander, a cultural anthropologist, and an avid co-op fan. To my living memory, I've only ever been in one home, which incidentally, um, unlike most people in Oakland, is still the home I live in. In the 80s, it was still a pretty cohesive community. Um, again, I think there was a slight bubble around me because my dad um, would be considered one of the, the kids from, um, he grew up in this notorious project called Cypress Village. It's, in the, it's no longer notorious now. It's just sort of like affor- uh, affordable housing. Um, but one of the kids that made good, right? He was like a football star, and then him and my mom um, bought a grocery store and distributed a lot of food and resources to the community. So there was a little special sort of bubble around our family. It was a really, but I think for many kids, it was a really sweet, cohesive, safe space where I think, I don't know, I found myself walking down the street at many different times of day and night and feeling complete safety, but also sort of intelligence and wisdom around the, 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 the people you didn't talk to when you were walking down the street. I do know that um, around the 80s is when the crack epidemic really took off. So you did see in passing um, some unsettling scenes of people struggling with drugs or people's children or family trying to sort of like second order struggle with those things. But there was still a sense that that was a struggle a human was having and it was not that that human was a threat to you, right? This, we, we still saw each other as connected and family. Um, moving through the, two, the, the 90s and the 2000s, 
I think what we saw a lot of was the the loss of um, political power, the loss of uh, community cohesion, and the loss of access to resources. So in the in the 90s, Oakland was more like a ghost town. Um, I sometimes would walk 10 miles from my junior high school to my house in West Oakland just because I like to walk. And you could go uh, a couple of hours and only see cars passing as opposed to people walking on the street. Um, uh, empty storefronts when you were in the flats in downtown area because after the 1989 Loma Prieta earthquake our current uh, governor um, at the time um, uh, Jerry Brown put into play one of his plans where he wanted to begin to invite guest workers to Oakland and what that means is what that what that looked like is that he tore down one of he did one of the 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 the, the first teardowns in the 90s of some of our historic landmark, which was Jack London Village and Jack London Square, and built a high-rise for guest workers. And that was sort of the beginning of the acceleration of, of the racialized displacement. Um, and so you, in the 2000s, you, you started to see really the, the, the aggregate of that intention and the outcome. So you saw a lot of construction, um, started to see a lot of new people who would not mix with the current people who were there. Um, you, you started to see a lot of businesses pop up, but you weren't seeing any um, black or brown or local people being hired for front service, only for back service. So you started to see this, this explicitly visible growing underclass. One of the biggest underlying issues is if we go back to um, um, sort of like redevelopment plans, is that there is no intention to include um, underserved, under-resourced citizens in um, the futures of our cities. That's the biggest issue, right? Like you, if you, if you take a drive through California, we have lots of space. If you do a survey of empty units, we have 20,000 empty units, right? If you look at the ways that our city budgets are, 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 are parceled out and subdivided, there's money that can be found in those budgets, right? If you look at who is leading our city planning, and in, in, in the case of Oakland, it's, it's um, profiteers who do not live, or many of whom do not live and work in Oakland. There are other people who have great ideas and great solutions for our cities. It's not part of the plan. So I had done all this work around just verbalizing the 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 sort of the the sort of anti-market thoughts that I had brought back home with me from graduate school. And I had done things like helped Cowrie Village like host um, the series of events that we called like um, barter barter events. So we were bartering goods and services to build a trust network. Um, where I was discussing, like, actually, value comes in through relationship. Currency is just a sort of fictional stand-in um, for interchangeability, and it's actually not what you think it is. So we were bartering um, skill sets for art. We were bartering um, bags of produce for um, services. Like, I bartered some um, mud cloth I had um, um, inherited from my uncle for some yard services. And then that spiraled into founding the SOBO, State of Black Oakland, which is the People's Assembly um, that responded to Cooperation Jackson and, and, and Malcolm X grassroots movement call for national um, movements around People's Assemblies. 
And um, I, we, we saw how powerful that was in that, um, you know, within a year and a half of our existence, we were able to um, place enough pressure on, on city leadership that a local um, superintendent got hired. Not because we were standing in front of buildings um, yelling, but because we had launched our own projects around self-determination um, without um, um, being at the door of our city leadership um, um, treated as beggars, as, as most folks are in large cities. Um, and um, when they were interviewing for superintendents, where, as usual, they were from out of the area without accountability, without contestation, we started holding our own community-based interviews for a superintendent. And we called their candidates that they called, we called those candidates to come to our forum and let us interview and approve them um, from a place of, of personal and communal sovereignty. And um, obviously, instead of deferring to the power that we were expressing that naturally belonged to us, uh, the, the, the school district scrambled and found a local and hired them outside of even their own process to, so as to tap down ours, which was great because what it showed me was that there is a lot of power in just showing up with an awareness of your own power. And around that time, I was an assistant librarian um, working um, in this very affluent public library. Um, you know, professors and um, old Berkeley hippie money and um, really great parks and really great schools. And um, we had a marquee outside of the library. A, a, a marquee is of the kind you see in a movie theater. So, you know, about, uh, you know, five feet, six feet tall letters that we slid on that were about, I don't know, 10 inches tall. And on, I opened the library alone on myself on Saturday mornings. And, um, And uh, so I'd place my, my words, like, you know, um, medit meditation sit, noon. And I arrived one Saturday morning um, to this, like, affluent liberal um, community to find that the marquee had been switched around to say Kuhn and my initials. So... Not only is it historically dated, <laughs> right? So I'm being a little sarcastic. I, I hope you understand that there's a lot of pain and, and fear under that, right? Um, it's also a, 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 a threat of violence. Because as soon as people begin to deploy um, racial terms like that, the next thing that happens is that a, a black person or a person who supports black people is lynched, murdered, and hung from something public so you can see the consequences of being a full black human in this society. And I'm not talking about a dated phenomena. I'm talking about that there are black people who are being lynched in the United States like last week. Okay? So that was a threat of violence against the only black librarian in a white library, in a white, unincorporated district. Um, and I thought at first I was angry, but it turns out I was afraid. And I had panic attacks all week. I cried. 
like everything that had never happened to me because I was in my bubble and then I was at all these special places that really like held what I brought to brought with me as, as something that was important and valuable to our society. And then I had to experience this moment. Um, and then the next week, we were at one of our meetings, and I hadn't told any of my people in Sobo about it because I was ashamed of it, right? And um, the person who was my campaign manager, they were like, yeah, oh my god, we got to get this city council person out, this woman. Oh, it's just, it's just so terrible for our future. It's like, what are we going to do? You know, and it's sort of like going around the room like, you should run for city council, you should run for city council. And I'm just sort of sitting there because I'm like managing so many things that week, like so many emotions that I hadn't told really anyone about. Um, and she looks at me and she goes, and as I mentioned to you, I, I at that time I had terrible um, performance anxiety, like someone who wants to get hit by a car instead of speak publicly, that's like real. And so this was a very surprising moment to me and she turned to me and she goes, you should run for city council. And there was a pause inside of me and I was like, you know, I should. Like this cannot happen anymore. Like everybody has contributed to this place. And so, like, the next week, she was like, oh, there's a press conference. You want to come? And I was like, yeah, I got neutral heels. <laughs> and I got this bomb green dress. I'm there. Give me, give me 20 minutes. I'll be there. And I remember I just showed up sort of as a learner. Uh, but somebody said, you look like you're in charge of something. And then they started asking me questions. And I was like, I do look like I'm in charge of something, don't I? And I just, like, really... Um, somehow that moment where I was like, oh, wait, you know, what am I afraid of? Y'all gonna take everything we got until we have nothing left. Dignity, housing, safety. What am I conserving here? What life am I protecting by not standing in front of people saying what's true? I'm not, I've not actually like talked about the whole thing before until now. And so somehow like he gave me this kind of boldness where I was like, I have this gesture that you might recognize. <laughs> but I had that for them. I had that for them. I had that middle finger for everybody. As I stood there like talking to these politicians, like, you know, sort of like throwing these kind of like really fake kind of performative solutions, if you want to call them that out, I was like, oh, I, I know the answer to this. Let, let's, let's clarify here. And every, every talk, every debate, it was clearer and clearer to me that um, all I needed to be was um, the person who understood the dynamics of that district, but how the, the politics of, of, of power worked, and um, had enough privilege, right? I lived in my mom's house, so nobody could take my housing away from me. I was an assistant librarian in a county library, so I had job security. 
Um, and um, everybody in the room was really invested in being polite and non-provocative. And that was the last thing I wanted to do. You come in a room with a middle finger, you're like, oh, okay, we're being polite. You've already given me some space to be what I need to be here. So it was actually kind of, once I got past my fear, I, did, I still was anxious and, and nauseous and all of that, but um, the, the, the sort of like righteous indignation supported me through these moments. And I felt, I felt really creative. I felt like I was living in this well that was finally like springing out of my belly. And I saw people um, who really had hopes for our future but no solutions being transformed by it. I was like, okay, I literally just helped this person remember that they could start their own project and they don't need to be at the table, right, with some special privileged group to get what they need. And so every day I felt more and more like I was here in authentic service. And, um, and I felt in many ways fearless because we were going to lose everything anyway. Um, so um, I felt uh, supported. I felt um, like um, I felt like there was some sort of energetic or spiritual kind of um, um, protection that my campaign had. We only raised ten thousand um, dollars, but we were everywhere in the city. We had full page ads taken out for us, right? Because there was something that people hoped, and even till today, as I mentioned, we fell fifteen hundred votes short. Um, but, like, really? I was an academic little kid who's never been in politics, and we only lost by 1,500 votes. We were like, oh, yeah, that's the business. People want something different here. Um, and even today, there are at least five to seven critical projects that are changing the city that grew out of the awareness that was birthed into the Oakland field. And so I still look back at it today, and whoever decided that it was cute or fun or violent or whatever it was to change that marquee, um, they did the world a favor. Um, so, it's a, you know, I'm not saying that like I'm affecting the world, but kinda. And when I ask our city leaders during the running of a campaign, why my city looks the way it looks, why my town looks the way it looks, Many of their responses were something like, we have no control over the free market. But I entered into that, aware, into that conversation knowing that the free market in and of itself is a fiction, right? The invisible hand of the market is actually people making strategic choices, looking toward outcomes that may or may not serve the, the larger whole, the, the greater good or the larger whole, whatever, however you want to define that. And so when these folks who we're paying, you know, eighty to $150,000 a pop to sit on our seats and direct the, the development and the future of our cities tell me that the one thing they don't have control over is the free market, which is the thing determining all of our futures right now, that to me at the time said, well, why are you holding up space in this seat? Why are you taking up this space? This is for yourself. This, the, that answer tells me you're not doing the work of others. Because principal people who find themselves in a job that they do poorly, they vacate that seat, right? 
and that, that, that was not happening. In addition, during the campaign, we ran on a platform around cooperative economics and how an independent economy could free us from being dependent on the vagaries of the market and the, the sort of um, fleeting and fluctuating demands of the tech industry, where they want to be in our cities during good times and they abandon our cities during bad times after we've made all of these, um, all of these compromises with these corporations for them to come to our city in the first place. Because, for example, in the midst of the pandemic, our city was completely abandoned by these folks who were, were champing at the bit the year before last to be in our city. And now we again have 20, 30,000 empty units that are hitting a median rent of $3,500 when the median income of Oaklanders are hitting about $1,200 or $1,300. And they're empty and waiting for, again, an absent future population that is not the people who are living and working and struggling there now. Um, and so starting to understand um, uh, the nature of cooperatives and the way that it offers back economic control and the way that it, it turns regular everyday people back into relevant actors who can contest the dynamics of the market. We knew the day after the campaign that rather than losing by 1,500 votes, which is how, how little we fell short of the seat, that we had actually won because we had created an appetite in the city for a transformation of the way that we engage with market forces. And so um, we actually launched a book club where we were teaching the book called Collective Courage by Jessica Gordon Nimhart, which is a history of black um, cooperatives in the United States. Um, and we were um, beginning to think about how we could incorporate into a philanthropic organization that would bring more capital to co-ops. Um, the folks who were um, hoping that EPPREC could exist as more than an idea, the East Bay Permanent Real Estate Cooperative, um, came to me and asked me to join the board, and I refused. But what I did offer to do was help them launch the co-op element of the project, because I was interested in a laboratory for some of the thinking that I had developed around um, solutions to um, black economic recovery in Oakland. So I was very excited about that and offered to do that work for free. And that is actually how EPPREC came into, into being, is that three or four of us volunteered to work for free to see if we could launch a real um, radical cooperative um, response to market forces. So we became market actors ourselves with the intention of really openly contesting the conventions of the market to talk about the ways that structurally blacker and browner folk, and I do mean that on a, on a color-based schema of how folks are excluded from resources, um, historically underserved folks, which includes the whole arc of, of, of us as humans, um, disabled folks, right, aged folks, all of our marginalized communities, um, the ways that, 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 that they were excluded, we were looking to sort of flip those dynamics and lower all of those barriers to entry and then leverage that critical mass of humans who make a city exist, right, who make a city real, who make a city's identity real, leverage them as the value factor in the way that we were able to then cause mission-aligned lenders, CDFIs, which are community financial development institutions, um, philanthropic institutions, see the strength and the um, sort of like a critical value of our projects. So when we went to lenders who wanted to discuss risk with us, 
we positioned our critical mass of community as an indicator of a lowered risk because of the accountability mechanisms that we built into the cooperative structure that we were deploying. So, so really our idea was that we wanted to demand that there are other value points that could define our role in um, economic forces in the Oakland real estate market. Everybody saw us form from a group of people who gathered in a room one day inside of a black independent space called the um, Eastside Arts Alliance. And so we came together to plan, to plan for a physical, technical, um, social and economic transformation through launching projects that would transfer in learning, power, connection, and the building of models, right? And as we did that, um, our, our, the, the way that we discussed what is the, 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 the path ahead of us filtered out into our community so people could understand what our goal was, like how we wanted to reach it. We realized that there's another formula. It shifted the arc of what we felt we could do in the face of like um, large-scale capital. And although, and I mentioned um, earlier that really our project technically is a drop in the bucket, but it's not the project, it's the experiment. So the, the, the lab is where the revolution starts. Come take a look and see what we could actually do if we sort of shifted off this rut we're in right now, this nonprofit rut, this charity rut, this service rut, right? Like, there, 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 is, there is the contestation of power, there is the sort of dismantling of power, and then there's the building of parallel power that doesn't look to one structure to inform itself. It informs itself on the basis of a new set of, of meaningfulnesses, right? and constructs a new set of sentences that will lead you to a different conclusion than you repeatedly landing at again and again because you're accepting the value and the reality propositions of those who want to keep control of reality and the control of value and the control of naming and the control of defining outcomes. You refuse those outcomes and you make other choices and see what happens. Noni's story feels fitting for our final episode, for the way her work weaves together so many concepts and strategies we've featured throughout the season. Like others, she taught us that together we confront a system that divides us, a system that pits us against one another to compete for resources that we are told are scarce. The unhousing market in the United States tells us that you can only have what you need if I am denied and dispossessed from having what I need. That this is the natural order of things, after all. Zero sum, us and them, winners and losers. We actually know that this is not the case. There's plenty of land and housing to go around so long as we distribute it effectively. In fact, it is possible and realistic for us all to have what we deserve to be safe and secure. What we really need to combat isolation is unity. What we really need is not competition, but solidarity. These ideas, though, cannot be contained only as personal feelings. They must become actions that we take together. When it comes to the unhousing market, the deck is stacked against decency. Claiming the human right to home in this environment requires creativity born from collectivity. We need to reimagine the system and develop alternative models, like those we've detailed across the last five episodes. 
the stakes are simply too high to continue doing business as usual. This has been Unhousing, Claiming the Human Right to Home, a Moral Courage Project, a collaboration between the University of Dayton Human Rights Center and Proof Media for Social Justice. This episode is written by me along with Ami Moore and features original music from Eric Charlton. I am also the producer of Moral Courage Radio. We've reached the end of our fourth season and we're grateful for audiences who enjoy what we do, share the podcast with friends and family, and even our materials in classrooms. In addition to the podcast, we produce traveling exhibitions, interactive websites, and high school curricula. Find out more about the Moral Courage Project online through the University of Dayton Human Rights Center. Thank you for listening.